Hello and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner, and today I'm joined by Pedro Navid, Head of Data Engineering at Dagster Labs, and we'll be talking about learning and sharing in public within the data space. Pedro, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. It's always great to connect with a fellow Canadian expat. Um, so let's start off with the introduction. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Pedram Navid. I am the head of data engineering in DevRel at Dexter. Um, been doing that for almost a year now. Uh, really a mix of our internal data engineering platform, as well as leading a DevRel Dev Advocate team that talks about all the things Dexter does. Have you found that, um, you know, doing developer relations in like a heavy data space, is, does it, perhaps feel different? I know most of your career has kind of been in the data space, but maybe it's uh, you know old hat for you. But I feel like a lot of times you see developer relations functions like historically being on you know API products or dev tools and stuff like that. Does it feel a little bit different? It does in many ways. Um, but what I really enjoy about it is that at the end of the day, like Dexter was a product made for me as a data engineer. I've used it in the past life. I really enjoyed working for it. And so being a DevRel for me is like, I just got to create stuff that I think I would enjoy. And the hope and the idea is that if I like it, then there's people out there like me who will like it too. And so that part has felt very natural versus like if I was in a different uh, space where maybe the tooling wasn't exactly made for myself, it's a little bit harder to get into the head of the people you're trying to communicate with. Yeah, and it's going to probably not quite hit the like authenticity bar as well. Whereas... If you you probably you, you're going to know how you know data engineers like think about the world, the language that they use, so you can whatever content you create or whatever you know problems you're interested in. There's probably other people within the space that are going to also be you know speaking that way and also encountering those problems. hundred percent. I found that anytime I created content that like I personally was really proud of, it did well. And anytime I tried to create content that I thought would like appeal to an audience, it did really poorly. And so the lesson there for me has always been just like create stuff that works for you. And that's really the only taste metric I have internally is that the vibe check. And then that tends to be the one thing I know uh, works really well. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of like if you're trying to, um, you know, uh, create some feature and you're like, this is going to be our viral feature or something like that. It's probably yeah. not going to be Never successful. Is. Yeah. It's, it's exactly. kind of hard in a hit space business to predict the hits. So it's like, you know, do, do something that feels good to you and, at the very least, you'll be happy, and then hopefully it'll also be successful with a larger audience. 100%, yeah. I think um, trying to hit viral content as a strategy is super hard to do. But like eating your vegetables uh, is a lot easier, maybe less fun, but uh, every now and then it turns into a viral hit too. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the, you know, aiming for home runs versus, you know, consistently hit singles and doubles. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So within software engineering, I think there's this pretty rich history of open source development, learning and sharing in public, but within the data engineering space, it's historically, I think, a little bit different. Things are kept a little closer to the chest. And why Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's such a great question. It's something I've like been so frustrated with um, my whole career because as a data engineer, you're very close to the software engineering world and you see them and you get very jealous, I think, quite often. Uh, you get jealous because they're a whole team and you're one person at a company, which is less fun. But also because of the like availability of the tooling they have is usually a little bit better. 
the sharing of best practices of actual code of actual implementation is much more normalized. Whereas in the data space, things have traditionally been much more uh, private and secret for, you know, obvious reasons. You don't want your competitors knowing every customer you have, you know, so uh, the data space in general tends to be, I guess, less open about, you know, how they do things. And the conversations tend to center more around like tooling rather than actual implementation for that reason. Um, it's something I've, I've been trying to change here at Dijkstra as well. So um, we launched a open platform called Dijkstra Open Platform, which is really a replication of our internal repository. We're not the first to do this. Like Mattermost, I think, is one that has done this. Uh, GitLab famously also has done this. But the examples are few and far between. And so we decided we would contribute to that as well and try to give people like actual code examples of data engineering done at a real company rather than a bunch of toy examples on how to like count apples and bananas every day. Do you think some of this is like a factor of the maturity of the discipline, you know, data engineering as a space and like a known, you know, a job title and stuff like that is not nearly as mature as uh, sort of traditional software engineering? A hundred percent. I think, I mean, I don't even know when it started, but data engineering has not been around that long. It has been in different shapes and forms and people had different titles for that role. But data engineering as a almost like sub-discipline of software engineering, which is kind of what it's become, is fairly new and nascent. Um, like version control is, I think, new to some people still these days, right? So um, I think as part of that growing curve of like learning how to adopt these best practices, how to, you know, create, you know, version control systems, I think sharing has started slowly started to become a thing that we're thinking about more and more. Um, and, and I am seeing it. I'm seeing others try to, be more open about you know the, the things that they're solving and how they're solving it, rather than just talking about oh here's the five tools I use every day. Yeah, there's only so many blog posts you can read about the modern data stack where they you know there's some diminishing returns on that. Yes, exactly. What do you think are some of the negative consequences of of being so guarded about actually sharing in public? Uh, it's a great question too. It's it comes with risk, which is I think why we don't see it as often as we do. Right, um, data I would think is a more risk averse uh, group of people in general. Um, they tend to be much more cautious about errors and bugs, right? A bug in software engineering might be something you fix the next day. A bug in data might, you know, give you the wrong numbers to the board and you lose your job. So they tend to be a little bit more risk averse. And so I think there's a lot of like negative possibilities that can come with sharing data. One is like you share something you weren't supposed to, right? You may start with the best of intentions and you think, you know, I'm only going to share the code that doesn't really affect anyone. And you realize somewhere in that logic, somewhere in that SQL statement, uh, you had a line in there that describes something that people uh, would pick up on and, you know, attack you for. And so if you're sharing maybe code you use to do auditing or financials and someone looks at that and doesn't like the way you've, you know, categorized some type of spend, that could be, you know, a serious organizational risk, right? So there's always, I think, a bit more on the line when you're working in that way. But if people aren't, you know, readily sharing sort of best practices, things that go beyond the toy problem, or just like, here's, you know, the five tools that I use, it makes it really hard to learn what you should actually be doing as a data engineer, right? It's really hard to learn. Um, I think outside of like that sharing, you're either uh, relying on your gut and hoping what you're doing is right. And I've been in this situation so many times where I'm like solving this like really complex problem. And I, I 
I found a solution, but I don't know if it's a good solution or the right solution. And there's nothing really to help me validate that. Uh, so that's, I think, a big part of it. Um, and the other side is like, sometimes you're stuck on something and you just want to see an example of how someone else did it to, to help you. We get this at Dijkster a lot. Like if you're starting with Dijkster for the first time, it can be kind of confusing to know how to connect these concepts together. And, you know, often I see these questions in our Slack community. And now what I've started finding myself doing is instead of answering the question directly, I just link them to an example in our public repo. And I say, hey, here's how we're doing this. And that gets people like 95% of the way there. It's like, oh, okay, I see. I'm supposed to connect these two things. And this way, I had to define this in this other way. It all makes sense to me now and I can move on with my job. That little bit of sharing, I think, goes really, really far. Do you think besides like helping people kind of like become better practitioners in the data engineering space, if there was more readily available like uh, shared content out there and examples, that would also help with like speed of innovation in the space? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I would imagine yes, right? So if we think of like how data engineering problems are solved and tooling is built, I think a lot of it comes out of like, I worked at an organization, I saw this particular problem, I've had to solve it 10 times, let me go and create some tooling to solve that. Um, but if we imagine that there were you know dozens or hundreds of companies out there sharing what they could about how they've architected data, how they model their data and how they built systems, then you could imagine people having access to much more broader wraps of data where they can be sure that the thing that they're building isn't unique to them, right? Like I've seen this many times where you like, you worked on Uber and you dealt with Uber scale data and you think every problem is Uber scale now and you go out and build a product that works really well at Uber. And then, you know, no one else in the world really has that problem. And so you've built something for nothing. But if you could kind of validate that solution against, you know, a dozen, half a dozen other uh, companies at all different stages, then you might be able to build tooling that's a bit more adaptable, a bit more flexible, and that can kind of be proven against many different types of problems. I think one of the challenges with sharing, which you kind of you know touched on in space, is that the data itself is is very valuable to a business. Like there could be you know core IP, there could be customer records or something like that, and even if you're only sharing the actual code that's used to transform the data or something like that, it's possible that it could leak some information about like more than what the company is comfortable sort of sharing. So how can companies like balance contributing to shared learning while not, you know, unintentionally sharing too much? Like how do they figure out like what the right line is? There's definitely some um, best practices you want to put into place. And I can talk a little bit through how we've designed it internally at Dijkster. We have our own internal repo that is completely private where we can contribute code, open PRs, make comments, and investigate what's going on. That always remains private. We have a process that takes a subselection of the folders in there. We have some rules around what kind of file types we accept, what we ignore, what we don't ignore, uh, certain folders that we deem just too risky or potentially risky in the future, we don't bother syncing over. Things that contain like deep modeling data, for example, tend not to be included. All of that stuff, um, we get to review internally with confidence and in private. And so, you know, if you open a PR and there's a whole bunch of commits to that PR, none of that gets synced automatically to the public repo. Only once we've merged on master, a PR has been approved, someone has reviewed it, then we open up a separate uh, commit that squashes all of that, 
uh, information and merges that into our public repo. And so we have a nice little process in place to make sure that, you know, places where there's too much risk, we just don't bother. And we think that's a fine trade-off to make. You don't need every single level of detail. But places where it's much more, you know, just like connecting tissue between systems that we're pretty confident is a fine thing to do. So a few examples are like hitting a Slack API to get records from the Slack API. Uh, we, we don't have any, you know, public information in that sort of transformation. It's just a common API call, but it's one that you might want to do. So you could essentially just copy that yourself. Things we don't include are like, you know, credentials, obviously they're all environment variables. And so those are all stored in Dexter Cloud. And so we don't have to worry about leaking any of that information. Um, we tend not to use credentials anyway in our code base. So that was a easy practice to sort of pick up on. Uh, but just ensuring that like, you know, as we build these things, always keeping in the back of our mind, like anything we build now could potentially be public. And that sort of mindset really helps us evolve how we write the code and how we think about the review process as well. And then you mentioned earlier the Dagster open platform. So this is, you know, some of the the effort that you're putting towards, you know, changing sort of the narrative around, you know, sharing in the space. Can you give a little bit of background about, you know, how that started, you know, what what's the engagement look like so far and kind of what what's involved with that project? Yeah, for sure. Maybe it's helpful just to give a little bit of context about what Daxter is, and then I can talk a bit about the open platform. So Daxter is a data orchestration framework. It's a way to build data pipelines, right? It's an open source tool. You can Go try for free anytime you like. There's also a hosted cloud version if you wish for us to host it. And essentially what it does is it lets you define all the assets in your organization. That's how you sort of model things in Dexter. And then the way that they connect together is uh, part of that framework. And then you can decide to run, you know, in an entire pipeline, or you can say, make sure this model at the very end is no more than three hours, you know, out of date or only run this subset of things that I care about. You kind of be really flexible with how you build all that. Um, it covers the full life cycle of data. So from ingesting data out of like APIs and databases, all the way through transforming and then moving it into other systems, BI tools, all what have you. So it's really like kind of the central nervous system of your data pipelines. And so internally at Dexter, we obviously use Dexter uh, to dog food it to make sure the product you know kind of meets our own internal quality metric. We also use it to test out new features before we release them to the public to sort of make sure, you know, these things that we're building, do they work in real life? Do they work on a real platform? And then we have a back and forth with our product team as we build that. And so there's a lot of value, I think, internally in that platform. Uh, and what we realized at Dexter was like, you know, we have a lot of questions that could easily be answered if we could just show people code. Like, how do I set up a basic, you know, repo? How do I get Daxter running with DBT? How do I use Snowflake? All of these, these are all things that we've solved internally and we think we have like good uh, foundations for. And so we thought like, what if there was a way to just take what we've learned and what we've developed locally and make that accessible publicly? You know, we're an open source company. We kind of believe in that transparency. And so we worked with the team internally on the engineering side to see, you know, what could we do as part of our CI/CD process, as part of like our GitHub workflow, to take what we deem you know acceptable and, and publish that publicly? And so we did that. There's a blog post around it as well. Um, but if you just search Daxter Open Platform GitHub, you'll probably find the GitHub repo where you can explore the code that we we built. 
yeah, and we can include that in the, in the show notes as well uh, for anybody that's listening and wants to check that out. So what is kind of like the goal with, with this project? Like, what are you hoping to achieve with it? Yeah, um, ideally to make data engineers feel less lonely would be great. I think as a data engineer, I've been there. You're often, you know, on a team of one many times, if not like two or three, if you're lucky. And so uh, you might have 30 software engineers for every data engineer, and you can see the way that they are able to share and review and talk through code and problems and issues that they're facing. It's a lot harder to do that as a data engineer. And so while I can't make you have more friends, you know, at work, I can maybe give you access to someone else, you know, who's been doing this. Um, and so we we found that like just giving people a little bit of something to like learn off of and explore has been, has been helpful. If that's all it does, like I, I'm pretty happy. Uh, ideally it also teaches you best practices, new ways of doing things. Um, I think in a perfect world, people might find, you know, ways that we're not doing things efficiently and like open up at a PR or an issue and, and talk to us through that. And maybe in the even more perfect world, it would encourage others to start sharing as much as possible the ways that they are building and deploying their own data engineering pipelines. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the values of, you know, sharing in public and even open source is that you like increase sort of your company learning cycles because you get a lot of feedback. You're inviting essentially feedback and it's harder to sometimes do that with like closed systems where you might only be sort of talking to your small subset of like customers and it's not that those people aren't valuable, but it just represents a smaller portion of the world. So it might be your your product improvements might come at a sort of slower rate than opening up to to everybody. Now, there's also you're inviting a lot of noise as well uh, with that process. So how's the engagement been so far? The engagement's been great. Um, we've had people publicly sharing it, you know, just out in the wild, which has been great to see. So that kind of validates that this was worth doing. I think I mean GitHub stars. I don't think they're valuable except when they're my repos and they're high, then I do like them. Uh, <laughs> so we've had like 150 or something stars. So that's a decent indicator to me that like people are at least engaging with it in some way. People even open up GitHub issues, I believe. Um, I actually haven't looked at it in a while. It's probably a good thing to check, but people are opening issues. So um, it, it's it's fun to see people engage with it. And I mean, we have a Slack community as well at Dagster. Uh, people tend to come in there and talk through problems they're having or something they've seen. And we've seen some engagement that way. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, it's been more successful than I had dreamed and hoped for, to be honest. I would have been happy with like 10 people kind of like looking through it and being happy or just like as an internal tool for us to share best practices. But it's kind of taken off on its own and, and it's been really great to see. Is that the biggest thing that surprised you so far is just sort of the speed of growth and engagement? I think so. Yeah. It's one of those things, like I said, like you, you don't know when you're building it, like, is this worth the effort? Is this worth the time? Will anyone care? Um, Cause you can't run the project yourself. There's no data involved. You can't clone it and do anything with it. Like it's not going to be a self-contained project that would work for you. It's very much dependent on our own infrastructure, on our own code base. Like there's a whole bunch of things that make it hard to replicate. And so there was that risk of like, Oh, this is too niche, too Dexter, too not useful for my use cases. Um, but we've been surprised to see like, you know, there's actual value in just seeing, you know, how does someone partition something, right? Like just these simple things that like you have docs for, you have guides for, you have like, you know, all these use cases, but how does it actually work in the wild when you have like a real data pipeline working through it? 
because things are always a little bit different when you start to put real stuff through it. And, and that's, I think, what's been most useful for, for us. And then has there been any negative feedback yet? You know, I think that's one of the things, the byproducts of sort of sharing it public is you're also inviting both the positive and the negative. Not yet. Um, I, I don't think we're popular enough to have the negative feedback, uh, but I, I'm sure one day it'll come. Um, I can't imagine people having, you know, like what they would say. Maybe they don't like the way I've written my code, which is fine. I don't like the way I write my code sometimes. But I mean, I'm always open to critical feedback. If you want to improve it, there's always a PR process. Um, but, but so far, I think people have been pretty, pretty positive about it. Pardon the interruption, but it's me, Sean, the host, talking to you directly. I hope you're enjoying the episode. And if so, please subscribe and leave a positive rating or review. You can also join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com community to make show suggestions, interact with me, other listeners, and privacy experts and enthusiasts. All right, now back to the show. And then I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Dagster itself. So can you, you, you gave a good uh, overview of the product. Um, so how does it compare to something like Airflow? Is Airflow like a direct competitor to Dagster? Yeah, I would say so. Um... Airflow has been around for a long time. It came out of almost the Hadoop era, if you can believe it. And it had a certain worldview, which, uh, I mean, to many days is still like how we tend to think about data pipelines, which is really largely around these tasks, right? I need to do this thing, and then it's other thing, and then it's other thing, and then my pipeline is complete. And so you might want to download some files. You might want to extract those files. You might want to upload those files. You know, that's sort of how people tend to think about data pipelines. Uh, what Dijkstra said is like, how about you tell me not about the thing you're doing, but about the thing you actually care about, which is the assets that come out of that pipeline, right? And so instead of talking to me about how you're going to download something and extract something, tell me about that end you know, table or model or Jupyter Notebook, whatever that real final output is. Let's model it that way instead of through these tasks. And what ends up happening is really interesting. It's Instead of having a lineage based on like a bunch of tasks running through each other, you now have like a lineage of all the data that you care about, right? At the end of the day, like we're doing these things because we want to generate some useful bit of information that someone's going to consume, whether that's a table in a data warehouse or a machine learning model or um, some CSV file even, right? All the, those are the things we actually want to produce and care about. Those are the things your stakeholders will come to you and say, is this up to date? And if you start to model your data pipelines through assets instead of tasks, you get this really nice ability to introspect your pipeline. You get really uh, smart lineage as well, right? You can be clever about how you materialize things. Instead of having to run this entire pipeline just to update one little table, you can say, do whatever it takes to make this one table fresh, and I don't care about the rest. And Diastro can kind of figure that out based on that lineage. Okay. And then you it's an open source project, but you also offer like a uh, cloud-based like managed service. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the open source product is, you know, fairly, fairly powerful. You can do almost anything you can with the cloud product. The cloud product is you have a few nice things that are just hard to replicate open source. One of them is like role-based authentication, SSO, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, as well as some like Daxter Insights, which is a reporting on top of your Daxter da data that requires a pipeline that kind of runs outside of Daxter itself. And so we can surface, you know, insights on, you know, cloud costs, on how long different assets take to run different teams and how they're contributing to your total pipeline spend, all that kind of interesting stuff. So um, 
both are available. Both are great. The cloud product is very easy to get started with if you don't want to deal with, you know, deploying in production yourself. There's both the self-serve model if you want to just run some basic compute, but we also have a hybrid model where you can have the compute on your platform through like ECS or Kubernetes, and then we'll run the control pane on top of that for you. So that's kind of how you're thinking about like from a security perspective, you're essentially managing the control plane, but the data plane might be actually living in, you know, live cloud environment as a customer. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. We, that's where most of our customers tend to do it, especially the larger ones. They tend to go with the hybrid model. They manage the workers. They have the ability to control the data on that side. And then we don't see any of the data, right? We just get the logs and all that for the control plane. Yeah. So the value add there is you're, you're essentially, they're getting the value that they're sort of offloading the management of the service. And then you're offloading kind of like the responsibility of having to touch any of the data. You don't want to, you know, get involved with that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then in terms of sort of, you know, sharing in the space and, and you know, learning in public, are, are you seeing any like emerging technologies, methodologies that are, could encourage more collaboration in the field. Like I think in the world of of uh, dev marketing, dev developer relations, there's tools like like Common Room for helping like measure the growth of communities and actually like give it like a monetary ROI value. There's also you know lots and lots of different um, you know communities that exist and stuff like that. What are you seeing in the data engineering space? Yeah, it's actually a really exciting time. I think the tooling is getting so good. Um, just compared to even like four or five years ago, we've we've gotten really lucky. And a lot of it is free and open source. Um, I think a few to call out is like DuckDB, I think has really changed the game for a lot of people. It's like SQLite, but for columnar databases, uh, it's extremely fast. It's a great way to aggregate, summarize, join data from all types of sources, whether it's a database, Parquet, CSV. And that's really, really been a powerful tool that we use internally as well. Um, there's a lot of Rust-based projects that are bringing sort of the power of, you know, a compiled language like Rust to Python, helping sort of ease the pain, I think, of working with large volumes of data. If you've been a Python user and you've touched data, you've probably used something like Pandas, which, um, you know, not, not the fastest, you know, way to process large volumes of data. You can run into memory issues quite often. It's not that efficient. And a lot of that just has to do with, you know, how Python is built. Uh, there's some great Rust bindings. Um, one is Polars, I think, is a great one. Uh, but there are others as well that kind of help ease that transition out of Pandas and into something a little bit faster. When you desire that and when you don't, you can just stick with the traditional Python tools. Uh, outside of that, there's like tools like DLT, which are making it easier to ingest data out of you know any system you really have. And that's often one of the harder things to do, right? So DLT is a great one. Um, DPT, probably worth mentioning, kind of kicked off this investment in the data space in many ways. So a bunch of great open source tools. And I think with that has come sort of this appreciation for open source and sharing that's starting to sort of trickle out, I think, into the community. Yeah, I haven't used DuckDB myself, but I've seen some impressive performance numbers from from it. And it looks like, uh, like uh, I've used SQLite in the past, but DuckDB looks like a, a fantastic like solution for for uh, you know, running something locally on your on your own on your own uh, machine where you need a column restore. Exactly. Yeah, it's incredibly fast. It's like it's so fast that you think something's wrong. You know <laughs> that feeling. You're like, this, there's no way this calculated anything correctly. I had this like um, bird observation data set I did for a, an event, a webinar, 
and I was just like playing around with it just to to see how how it operates. And I think there was something like two million rows, and I did a group by aggregate sum, and it was done in like a few seconds. Like I, before I could even like look at the results, it was finished. And something like that in pandas would have taken you know at least thirty seconds to a minute, if not longer. Uh, and so you get this feeling of like, is this even possible? Is this real? And that's always like thing exciting for me when you get something that like surprises you still in the data space after being in it for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you think companies in this space could do if they're interested in you know do having like building more of a culture of openness and sharing within the data engineering community? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I think it depends on the company and the culture, really, right? I think you got to start there. So if your culture is traditionally, you know, very conservative, you're a big bank and you're uh, like not used to sharing anything, you've got a lot of work ahead of you if you want to kind of encourage that. Um, not to say it can't be done. There are companies out there like Capital One, I think, is really good at this. They tend to be a lot more open about, you know, the kind of work they're doing internally. And there's many reasons to do it too, right? It's not just about giving back to the community, but I think when you do stuff like that, your work becomes open. It becomes a great recruiting tool. People want to work somewhere where their work can be seen. It's tough to say, you know, I worked 20 years at a bank and what I did, I can't tell you about because it's all under NDA. Like that's not a great experience. But if you can go and work somewhere and show like, you know, not only did I build something, I was able to talk about it at a conference or there's a nice blog post attached to it. That's, I think, a lot more compelling for people when it comes just from a pure recruiting standpoint. So in terms of what you can do, I think it, it begins with the culture at the very beginning, right? So it, it's tough to change the entire culture of a whole company, but you can always you know, have a dedicated team that's more focused on this. Um, I've seen companies do things like an innovation team or entrepreneurship team that they sort of spun out internally to say, you know, we're going to give these people access to you know, better computers or less restrictions on how they operate, access to executives who can, you know, give them a budget. And let's just go see what these people can do. And like we'll pick 10, 15 people across the org that are, you know, really interested in this stuff and, and see if they can find ways to make this work, unhindered by some of the bureaucracy that comes with a large org. So at the extreme end, that might be something you want to do. If you're a smaller company that doesn't have some of those um, concerns, then it might be a little bit easier. You know, but it always, I think, starts from the top down, right? You have to sort of uh, show that openness is a value that you really want to encourage. And you got to show lead with example, right? You can't hold people accountable to things if you're not able to do them yourself. And so find ways that you can, you know, encourage that uh, as a leader. And then hopefully that kind of trickles down as people feel safe and, and welcome to do that type of thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to your point about banks, I do think that there is this transformation that's happening in sort of oh, some, of, especially some of the large American banks now, where like uh, JP Morgan, for example, hired a bunch of like ex Twilio DevRel people to come in and like lead their dev marketing and develop relations and evangelists, and then they've launched a whole new um, uh, like portal. They're opening up their APIs, so it's not like you don't have to email somebody <laughs> anymore and get like yep. granted access to this thing. It's not this thirty day process. Uh, so there is this transformation that's happening. So, you know, maybe we'll see something similar in the data engineering space. And also to your point, like, I think engineers, one of the reasons people love working um, on consumer facing products is you can go and be like, hey, I built that thing. Like I, that, you know, button there, that it was the thing that I built or that feature or whatever. And it's harder when you're working more sort of on the downstream, the back end data engineering space. But if you have an open source project, blog post, some, you know, form of content that is a way to kind of point to like, Hey, I did that thing. That's, that's about my work. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. I think um, if you want good talent, you're going to have to see what they want. And I think people who are very talented love sharing, you know, the work they do. Right. Um, I know I enjoy talking about the work I do. I enjoy writing about it. I enjoy, you know, going and talking here, for example. Right. So being able to do that is a really powerful lever. I think if you want to bring talent, it's not just about salary. I think it's about scope and, you know, authority and all the other fun things that come with the job and really, you know, bring value to what you do every day. Cause we spend so much time here. And I think I am seeing it with banks as well. Um, I used to work at a bank like 12 years ago. No, that's not possible. Uh, <laughs> 2018, whenever that was, was the last time I worked at a bank, but I started in 2008. So, wow, that is a long time ago. <laughs> um, and we had that, right? It was funny at a bank. We didn't see our competitors as other banks. Apple was like a competitor to us because we really saw like, you know, these people are going to hold a whole ton of cash and they've got the technology to make people think differently about how they think about money. And you saw this with Apple, right? Now they have Apple Wallet, Apple Savings, Apple Cash, right? So, um they're making it easy for consumers to do things. And, you know, you don't become an Apple without having really great talented engineers. And so I think if you're a bank and you're thinking about how you want to, you know, move forward and compete with other tech companies, because that's who you're really competing with as a yeah. bank these days, right? You got to find ways to make it more enticing to to come work there, right? It can't be just about, you know, wearing a suit and talking in front of execs all day. It's got to be a little bit more fun than that. Yeah, if you want top tier tech talent, in the fi financial industry, then you're going to be competing with like Stripe and Adyen and these types of companies. So you got to make it as fun and attractive to those people as, as possible. And, you know, to, to your point about, um, you know, you like being able to, you know, share your work and talk to people in public. I mean, I've created multiple podcasts just so I can talk to people like you. And it's a way like people want to talk to their peers. And it's also a way to kind of like level up. If you only ever work in a silo, it's hard to kind of know like, is my work that good? Like, how does this sort of compare? And that's kind of goes back to our, our, the whole topic that we're talking about is being able to actually have resources where you can sort of triangulate is the thing that I'm doing, like the right thing, is this better or is it, you know, way worse than sort of what is considered uh, best in class? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's how we all learn and that's how everything gets better. Right. So, um, we all look at software engineering and I get jealous because it's like so good, right? Well, like how do they get good? Good. It's not by, you know, keeping everything private and not sharing anything. It's by being so open, believing in open source, believing in sharing, building things for others and contributing back to the community as much as you take this is like a huge part of it, right? You look at some companies and all they do is take from open source tools and projects and they give nothing back. And it's like, well, I don't know. It doesn't feel great. So the more we can contribute back to all the things that we've been given, I think the better it is for everyone. Well said. So as we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd want to add or share or how should people, you know, get in contact with you if they're interested in what you're doing over at Dexter? Yeah, for sure. I think the easiest way to get started with Dexter is to visit Dexter.io. Uh, you can try a free cloud product if you don't want to bother setting it up locally. Um, if you want to join our Slack, there's a link to our Slack channel there. We have a really a uh, good AI bot actually that we just built. Uh, if you join our Slack and go to the Ask AI channel, you can ask it really any question about Dexter and it'll walk you through building pipelines and any, any difficulties you fall into. Outside of that, I am on LinkedIn at Pedram Navid and I am on Twitter or X or whatever we want to call it these days at PDRMNVD and I'm out there as well talking data. So happy to awesome. hear from anyone. Well, Pedro, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think we took it in a, a few different directions, but this is my, uh, um, 
you know, a lot of topics that I love really like chatting about and, and digging into the details from you know, community building, sharing, open source, all the way to data engineering. So thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much, Sean. Cheers. Cheers.